Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport, music and business, and we deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class performers. I'm Noel Allnut, the CEO of Securo, and today I'll be talking to politician and former skiing champion, Zali Stegel. Zali's ambitions and talents have flourished due to her dedication and persistence. In today's episode, we gain insight into how to deal with high performance and high stress situations. Zali is truly a great example of strength and resilience. Building Resilience Podcast. Zali Stegel, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to understand more about yourself and, and hear of your uh, perspective on, on resilience. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations on becoming a, a Member of Parliament. Um, that's been a really exciting journey for, me, for you. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, look, it's been a really amazing three years since uh, winning the seat back in 2019. But also, I have to say now, getting re-elected for a second term because ultimately it's um, it's a very long three-year job into you know sort of job um, uh, approval process or uh, you know probation period um, and it's nice to have passed the probation period and been you know re-endorsed by the community for a second term um, it's been amazing representing our community putting forward solutions uh, and really trying to serve Warringah so uh, it's very challenging at times um, and, and it's a lot of work but but I've got to say it's been a lot of fun. Oh, well, congratulations. What I'd love to hear about today is the story that got you to where you are today. Um, you've had a fascinating career um, across um, across uh, skiing, um, professional sports, uh, becoming a lawyer, and now becoming a, a, a member of parliament and, and really leading the field in the in in the political sphere. Um, I was really going to ask you the first question: is that much you can't do? But I thought I'd uh, I thought I'd start. <laughs> I thought I would start uh, start at the beginning. Uh, you had a really interesting upbringing, spending time in in France. Um, I'd love to know what uh, a young Zali was like, and and how you then uh, from 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 being a teenager and uh, getting into then getting into the uh, the, uh, the the Olympic team at uh, Albertville in 1992. <laughs> Look, it's obviously a big journey, but um, I guess. If I had to, I'm an Aries, which, and I actually really am true to my zodiac star <laughs> um, in terms of being fairly competitive and, you know, strong willed. Um, so that probably does explain a lot of my professional career and sort of drive when it's come to a lot of things. And from a very young age, I was always very, very competitive, like I have to say, um, very keen to succeed um, and to work out what would it take to succeed um and uh but also very um yeah very driven so um i've only got an older brother and so my poor brother had to put up with me really pushing the boundaries at all times um <laughs> but incredibly lucky that my parents were just um or are um was just so focused when i was growing up on making sure we had every opportunity of our you know they provided every opportunity and facilitated us pursuing any dream we had so and I think that came from if I could backtrack that my grandfather was a wallaby 
uh, Jack Stegall, he played, and he was of that generation that they played until their early to mid-20s and then they had to give up their career because he became a lawyer, got married, had kids, and, you know, real life had to kick in. It was the amateur days of sport. And so my dad always looked back on his dad's career of thinking, wow, how much more could he have done if he had been able to continue or pursue it more or further. So uh, my dad played rugby as well and my mum was a fairly good swimmer, uh, but they developed a love of skiing. And so they were always thinking a little bit outside the box of how do we have a slightly different life and maybe it was the 70s or <laughs> something like that. But Anything goes. Yeah, yeah. They went for a sea change. Uh, so most people go for a sea change. They went for a snow change. They so right. decided to raise two young kids in the French Alps in a ski resort, all because they wanted to go skiing. Um, And we joined the local race club and we were ski racing. We were windsurfing in summer. I used to do trail running races in spring and autumn. And mum and dad just really facilitated everything that Zeke and I wanted to do as kids. They really put energy behind making it happen. Um, so incredibly lucky. I think that was a really big driver for me that I developed that mentality of, of course, it's possible to achieve these things. You just have to set your mind to it and make it happen. So when I was 13, I remember watching the Olympics and thinking, oh, I want to go to the Olympics for Australia, <laughs> the Winter Olympics. <laughs> now, I didn't think about the, you know, the practicalities of it. I just thought that was where I felt that you know, my talent and ambition and what I wanted to achieve. So um, and then my parents went about facilitating it. So we came back to live in Australia. I used to ski every weekend, travel down to the snow. We lived in a caravan. My parents took out a second mortgage um, and they were always prepared to facilitate it as long as I was dedicated. So if I did the work, they would support me. If I slacked off, no go anymore. Um, And so... My first Olympics, I was 17. I was in year 12 at school. I was the best in Australia. Um, Actually, there was no automatic spot at those Olympic Games. It was two spots for alpine skiing. Stevie Lee had the first spot. And the second spot was actually going to go to the men's team. And I was a pesky 17-year-old who said, no, it's not automatic that the men's team should get it. It should be up for whoever's the best skier with the best results. Um, So I quit halfway through year 12, went and trained full-time, went skiing in Europe, um, got better results than the guys and took the second spot, uh, which, of course, they didn't appreciate too much at the time. (laughs) Um, But so that's probably really symbolic of, um, you know, I didn't let maybe what conventional perception of what was possible stopped me from thinking, no, no, we can aim for more than that. We just have to work out what you're going to need to do to make it happen. Um, Of course, my deal with my parents was I could quit halfway through year 12 to go to those Olympic Games. I had to come back. I had to come and finish. I had to come finish year 12 the year after. Um, So I did it by correspondence the year after, still got a very good mark, um, and then continued on from there. So I think that's really symbolic of a lot of things I've done in life where it's not automatically straightforward. It's not obvious that it's possible to do it, but if you decide that's your goal, you can then work your way backwards in how do you make it happen Um, and don't be afraid to think outside the box to make it happen. Um, so, you know, from there I went to four Winter Olympic Games. Um, by the time I got to my third ones in 1998, I was really like, 
my friends were at uni and had a life and were partying and I was kind of 23 and thinking, you know, I've either got to crack this skiing business or I've got to move on to something else. Um, and from a resilience point of view, you have really big highs and lows. You're on the road on your own and you really have to stay very focused on what your goal is, why you're there, what's your why is really important. So that journey that you went on, the hard work, the dedication and the sacrifices and um, and not being f- afraid to stand out from the crowd and, and make drastic changes um, as a young person really set you up for, for where you are today. But well, that was the piece that really propelled you um, into the Olympic squad. Um, what were the systems and processes you had in play as a young person um, that enabled you to stay at the highest level? Because getting there is one thing and staying there is the, another. Yeah, I think ultimately it has to come down to self-belief um, uh, drive. So you can never get complacent and you have to keep push, striving for more, pushing for more. So I am a bit of a restless person when it comes to that in terms of constantly looking for what's my next challenge, what's my next goal. Um, and I have had to learn to just take a step back and actually slow down sometimes and enjoy where you're at because if you don't enjoy the journey, you know, it becomes all very difficult as well. So, I mean, I think it is that resilience along the way and that focus and drive that gets you there and keeps you focused on where where you're aiming for next. What is it that made it all happen? I just, I was just always like that. (laughs) Just committed. To give you an, an example, in the equivalent of about year five in primary school, um, you know, we had the choice at school of the boys were doing wood carving and the girls were doing knitting. And I was the only girl who said, no, no, thank you, but I'll do the wood carving um, <laughs> because I knew I was a terrible knitter. So, you know, I've just always been willing to sort of tackle something a little bit different um, if I felt that that was what was sort of going to offer the right opportunity. Have you taken inspiration from anybody, um, either in your personal life or somebody else? In, the, in in more of that kind of media or high-profile life where uh, you've seen how they go about their business and, and their mentality that you would uh, that you'd look to replicate or emulate? In various ways, yes. So in skiing, for example, um, a bit of a sort of an idol was Brenny Schneider, a ski, Swiss skier, and then there was Annalisa Koberger who skied for New Zealand. Um, I guess I always uh, looked at people that were successful and then I would analyse what is it that they do that helps them be successful and what can, how can I do that? How do I replicate that? So I would look at their setup, their training, their approach, get to know them, understand their mentality, what, you know, what do they do? So for me it's always been, been about, um, you know, really break it down, how, you know, success requires a, a formula. There is an element of luck at the end of the day that, you know, on some days it all falls together and on some days it doesn't. But there are some key ingredients to put you in the position to have a chance at success, and that is hard work. You've got to do the training. There's no shortcuts. You need the advice, right? You need the coaches. You need to put the expert team around you to and be open to their critique and their advice. Um, you need the right technology and equipment. You need to do all that. And then you need the right mindset 
to be open to the opportunity for it to come along and embrace that option. Um, and then you need a bit of luck on the day. But so for me, it was about finding people that were successful wherever, whatever it was that I was doing. So it's really hard to think of particular people. Um, I, I, as a kid, I did windsurfing. So I got, you know, I got to know um, in my category, the girl that was winning the French championships in windsurfing. And then, you know, I learned from her and ultimately came third in the French championships in windsurfing. So it's one of those things that I've always been fairly good at identifying what are the ingredients to ultimately build success. How did you find transitioning out of um, high-level sports? It's often a conversation that's, uh, that comes up, especially talking around mental health with a lot of the guests. Um, and you see some sports people come from that highest high of being at the uh, the MCG one minute and uh, then just walking along the street like everybody else the next, and they find that, that balance difficult. How did you find the transition out of skiing into industry? Yeah, it, it's really tough. And, it, you know, I think there's a few ways it can happen. You know, the end of a certain career, especially sport, can either happen by, um, you know, design, you've decided to retire, and or it could be you're no longer selected or you get injured. Um, I, ironically, I'd had 23 um, years of skiing nonstop. I was never injured, so I never had to break. Um, so physically incredibly strong, but mentally I was really tired um, and really needed a break from the pressure of expecting my, you know, of wanting of myself to be successful and win. Um, so uh, by, the, by the time I went to my fourth Winter Olympic Games, I had decided that was enough. I was nearly 28 and I was really keen to do law and have another career. I had a Bachelor of Arts in Media and Communication that I'd done by correspondence. And the next step was, you know, I wanted to have kids and I wanted to have family and I wanted my next career to be successful. So I didn't want to leave it too late. Um, I, I also felt it was, a couple, you know, when September 11 happened, I was away skiing in New Zealand at the time. Um, and I remember feeling quite... Um, it was a luxury to place to be in sport and that there were maybe more important things to be doing in life you know, from a social conscience point of view. Um, and so I just, you know, was getting restless that I was looking for a bit more out of what I was doing. So by the time I retired in 2002, I was ready to stop. I was emotionally exhausted um, and uh, I was looking for what the new challenge was going to be and, and needing something new. And I remember a journalist at my press conference said, what's the highlight of your life? Um, and I said, well, geez, you know, I really hope I haven't had it yet because <laughs> At 27, you kind of think there's still a long way to go. And no matter the high you've already had through sport, and, you know, I won an Olympic medal, won the world championships, you've got a long life ahead. And so you have to still hope that your peak is ahead, right? You can't have peaked already. Um, and I think that's what's really hard for sports people. You have these incredible highs and success and, you know, fame and fortune and whatever comes with it. And you have to redefine yourself post that career. And a lot of people haven't invested much time in who they are as a person and, what, you know, what defines them. And if everything is wrapped up in your sport and that is no longer part of your life, you're not left with much. So it's really important to invest in yourself. And I think it's important to have a plan B and invest in your, you know, your career. So train or study or do something else because, 
Very few sports make enough money that you can have, you know, live the rest of your life on and you're going to have to do something with your life. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important. But it is a big problem. Ironically, it's a problem for politicians as well. There's um, politicians that lost their seats in this last election. There's a bit of talk about that, about how hard they're finding that transition and I think it's very similar to elite sport where your whole life has been wrapped up in and your identity is wrapped up in an occupation and all of a sudden you have to be something else. And if you haven't invested any time or, you know, thinking into that, it can be very difficult. And it's a real catch-22 because without the sacrifices of being really single-minded in terms of to get to the top of the game, whether it be sports or politics, um, it's hard to also do other things. Um, and uh, it's it's hard enough when you're working in business to, to start another business, never mind something that's so high profile. Um, it's interesting. Gladys seems to be doing okay now at, at Optus. Uh, she's, uh, she's one of our competitors now, so <laughs> it's interesting how different people go into go into different areas but it's 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 a really interesting point around that that sheer dedication to get there um and then the kind of that that door on the other side of that of that achievement um or the map more so on the other side of that achievement isn't laid out as well as when you're in a, a training program or a or something that's got real clear guidelines um laid out for you um did you did you have much support group around you coming out of sport that that assisted? What was the what was your kind of ecosystem like? No, and look, it's changed a bit since because I think like the Olympic Committee has recognised how hard it is for athletes to uh, convert to a new career, especially when sports where you start at such a young age, right? You have some sports like swimming or gymnastics, and I mean any sport really. You've done it all your life since you were a kid. And you just and you've given up a lot of other things along the way, so you just don't have um, that life skills of a life outside of that. So um, it's really important to have mentor programs and training and assistance available, especially if you know you retire from your sport because of injury or you're not selected because you're not performing as well anymore. So you you know it's not in your at, at a time of your own choosing. Um, so no, I didn't have any support back then, but. I was fairly driven in that I had already done one degree by correspondence and I had a very clear plan of what else I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to study law or go into journalism. I tinkered with journalism for about six months and then decided, no, nah, that's not what I want to do. I want to study law. Um, and uh, and so I, I've always been a very planned person. My husband jokes that I'm 10 steps. I always have... <laughs> I have my future quite mapped out and that allows me to feel secure in that, you know, I know where I'm heading and how I'm getting there. So I very quickly, you know, and you would have thought after all those years of travelling I could have taken a long holiday and done, you know, and I regret it now. I look back and I think, geez, when I retired, why didn't I do a year of backpacking around Europe and just have some fun and take my time? Um, but instead, I went straight into working. I started my law degree. Like I retired in February. I started my law degree in September. I had my first son was born in May the year after. Like I had kids straight away. I just went straight into my plan. My game plan was 
four-year law degree, have kids, get to the bar, become a barrister. And I did it within five years. <laughs> and you did it. Again, that commitment and dedication and, uh, like you say, having a plan because it's um, there's a lot of people who've got great ideas, but they don't um, they don't take that first step. Um, the, there's um, quite often that I see in business, um, people come to me with business ideas, and they sound great, but the the journey between kind of the, the unicorn software company and uh, and actually hiring the first person, there's a big gap in that, and the and having the having the structure to do that. What was the tipping point when you said, you know what, I, I want to be a politician. I want to stand up for this community. I want to create change. Um, I know what I stand for, uh, and I believe the community will come on the journey with me. What was the tipping point that took you there? I guess I think it was gradual. Um, obviously, as a barrister, I was very apolitical, stayed out of the public eye, focused on the work that you're doing for individual clients. But at times you get frustrated that the system isn't working. Um, I think I was always fairly also frustrated that we need more women in government and more women at the decision-making table. Um, and I was on a few boards at the time where I was driving change when it came to uh, gender equity in recognition and in roles that we had within those organisations. Um, and I was coming to realise more and more that if you really want to change the system, you've got to be within the system where it's getting set up, which is ultimately parliament when it comes to laws. Um, frustrated with climate policy and on other fronts that I felt like, you know, expert advice wasn't being given the the consideration it needed and that self-interest within the party systems was getting in the way of good policy and we had really divisive things happening. So I think it was that combination of all those factors drove me by 2018 to think, right, 2019 election is coming. Is this the time? Is this the change I want to do? Um, you know, it was sort of a combination. 2013 we had Julia Gillard being I thought treated in an incredibly misogynistic way by the Australian media and the current member for Warringah, the, the previous member. Um, we then had the Trump-Hillary Clinton election where, again, as a professional woman, I found that pretty insulting. Um, then the events around Malcolm Turnbull with Julie Bishop and so that constant disregard um, and then just the, the climate wars were really frustrating me um, in that we just didn't have better uh, voices in Parliament to put forward other solutions. So I think all of that meant that by 2019, with the election coming up, I wanted to give my community a choice of something different. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a local, I, I felt that I had the capability to do the job in that I've been in the public eye for sport, I've got the legal skills to understand legislation, I want to listen to experts, I am a local, so I'm in it for my community. Um, and so, yeah, and, and it, what's been fascinating is seeing that rise of engagement by our communities where so many other people like me, um, you know, were yelling at the TVs and frustrated about the state of affairs. And at some point, everyone's got to stop being a bystander and start stepping up to change the system. And everyone's got different capacity in how they can help change the system. But I felt like if I'm not prepared to step up and put myself out there for this, I can't expect other people to do it. So, 
you know, it's a bit of that if not me, then who then? So, you know, like we've just we've just got to get up and do it. And so many other people in the community felt that way and got involved. And so it was a community effort that everyone wanted to see change. So how would you compare standing on the, the top of a mountain uh, in, in the Olympic Games versus walking the streets of Warringah campaigning? They must very different scenarios, but the resilience and the hard work, um, ethic, the work ethic, sorry, must be pretty similar. What, would, what did you learn from your sporting days that led you to be a great campaigner? <laughs> um, well, the, the campaigning is the, the hard work. You've just got to be out there, but you also you've got to listen. You know, you're there to listen to the community. So that's what you're really doing. Um, I think the, maybe I would compare standing at the top of the Olympics as standing at the, you know, um, in Parliament about to deliver a speech or argument or when I was a barrister standing at the bar table in front of the judge having to deliver my final submissions. Um, you know, at that point, no one else can step in and do the job for you. You've got to deliver. It's your turn. Um, but the, there's a whole team that brought you to that point, right? You don't get there on your own. You've got there because you've got staff and advisors and people that have helped you prepare, you know, engage with the community to put forward that solution. And it's the same in sport. You might be the ultimate performer in terms of you have to win or lose the race, but the coaches get you there, the team gets you there. You know, a lot of things go into the work. Um, so I, you know, I think it's knowing all that, appreciating all that makes a huge difference. So when you're campaigning, you're out on the street, you're talking to people, you're listening, you're looking for solutions, um, you know, and you need to be, <laughs> you need some energy. It's, it is long and it is tiring. Um, but I, I tend to have that attitude of I will leave no stone unturned. Um, so, which you do have it in sport. That's the only way you ultimately win in sport. You have to be prepared to go that extra distance. Um, I think it's the same campaigning or in any career. You have to be prepared to give it 110%. Yeah. What advice would you give to uh, young people today um, who are looking to potentially get into the public eye? Um, what would uh, what would be the key pieces of advice that you would give them? Um, I think definitely be brave to do it. Don't hesitate. I think um, uh, remembering that it doesn't define you. So be very clear about who you are and your personality. Yeah, I think it's really important to be very centred about that um, because if not, that public criticism will get to you. And I think that comes back to the resilience piece. You do need to have thick skin. For me, it's, you know, water on a duck's back. Um, my team feels the criticism and some of the trolls more than I do. Um, I tend to think the negativity is often more of a reflection on those people than it is on me because they don't ultimately know me. Um, and um, but, but I think for anyone wanting to, I'd say definitely if you feel passion about an issue, you want, you know, make your life count. Uh, I'm a big believer in you've, you'll only ever regret the decisions you weren't brave enough to take. So failure is power for the cause. You won't win everything. You definitely, you know, failure is how you learn. It's on the days you fail that you learn the most lessons to do it better next time. Um, so don't ever let that sort of, you know, hold you back from, from trying. Speaking of failure, um, 
Australia seems to be failing somewhat uh, when it comes to climate change. And I know it's something that you're very passionate about. And we need more people to speak up about it and take action where they can take action. Um, as you've mentioned there, that's been a common theme of, of why you've come into politics, because if not you, who? Um, we've got a we've got an audience of people looking to create change um, across the board and climate change is part of that um, as the owner of a business who really cares about climate change and reducing the carbon footprint um, what would be the practical advice you would give to to listeners in terms of what what does change look like um, from a kind of and uh, going back to the Zali's 10 steps what can, what can we all be doing better well I think again don't get paralyzed by the size of the task right just because you set a big goal doesn't mean it's impossible to achieve but you then have to break it down into manageable steps you know baby steps are really important um so again on on that journey to reducing emissions and dealing with climate change just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't get started. <laughs> you have yeah. to start with what's manageable. And so do the baby steps and gradually the baby steps get easier and so you do the bigger steps. Um, and so for me, even from a policy point of view, you know, it's trying to bring people away from their, you know, everyone's stuck in their corner. Um, we've got to bring people together to work on the solutions because, Failure is not an option on this topic, right? Climate change, failure is just not an option. So, uh, it, it, you know, it won't be perfect. We've already wasted a lot of time, so we know it won't be perfect. But it mean, you cannot quit this issue because it's too existential. So we have to just keep going and keep moving it one step at a time and whether that is a conversation at a time with people who are reluctant or not sure. And it's also, you know, you have to seek to understand before being understood. So you have to actually listen to people. And if they're not convinced about the need to reduce emissions, let's try and understand why. Um, have they been misinformed or do they have mis mis conceptions around cost and where the realities will be or where the opportunities are and then not everyone's motivation will be the same thing so some people will be more motivated by opportunity you know of where the transition is but others will be more motivated by the thought of legacy of what their kids and environment or conservation um, you know so it's understanding what are the motivators for people and then you can bring them on board for the journey which I think is important and we've been too divisive around this it's been you're either 100% committed to climate and transition or you're not at all and you know and you can't be fighting for climate change if you're still living a day a life that has modern appliances in it and, you know uh, it's just like oh my goodness just you know everybody just you know just stop making it so difficult and get on board so for people that are passionate you know not everyone's going to have the same passion about it but try and make it, making it attainable and if you make that you know the relate you relate it back to sport um not everyone's going to be up for running a marathon but yeah. if you start by saying okay my goal is to do that but then let me see if I can run 500 metres. Can I run a kilometre? Can I go to five kilometres? You know, and everyone will find the, the the bit they are capable of doing. And ultimately, we will all be healthier and happier. So <laughs> we hope so. That's how I go about it. 
Yeah. No, that's really important viewpoint. And I think you're right. There's so much kind of black and white thinking, being able to kind of bring it down to a pragmatic approach um, and really being able to have actionable insights um, of taking different steps and accept, like you say, you, you don't need to be driving um, an electric car to also care about climate change. It's it's part of an evolution um, and we need to all evolve together. Um the final question for me, Zolian, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you more, and I'm sure our listeners will take away some amazing insights from this conversation. Um, the question I ask everybody to close off is, how do you define resilience? That's <laughs> a hard one. Um, never giving up, uh, I think, would be my definition <laughs> of resilience, in that you're going to take, set, take setbacks, but... Um, ultimately, uh, re- resilience is you keep going um, and, you know, you find what it takes to keep going. That's a great summary. Um, and it's been quite consistent um, across people from sport is the resilience is really defined from um, no matter what the conditions you keep moving forward um, and, and you have a plan in order to do so. Um, Zali, thank you very much for your time today. Um, congratulations again on the re-election and uh, congratulations on everything and thank you for everything that you do for the uh, for, for your local community um, and also seeing how that then transcends into the, to the broader Australia. So thanks again and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. Lovely to be on. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like the show, hit five stars. Thanks today to our guest, Zali Stegel. We appreciate your time. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about myself or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo, trust tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. G'day, this is Tim Gilbert. And I'm Shane Lee. Together we'll bring you the only podcast you'll need to get your daily dose of sport. With episodes out Monday to Friday afternoons, ready for you on your drive home. We've got a quick hit of sports headlines, keeping you up to date with the news you need to know. And we'll take a deep dive into the stuff you've always wanted to know. Cannot wait. Follow us on your podcast app so you don't miss it. We'll see you then.